I think I'm on. Praise you, Jesus. Life-giving friends. I preached this message a while back, but I felt I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to do it again. <laughs> felt like the Lord wanted me to do it again, so I'm going to do it again. How many of you are okay with me doing it again? We say, Jesus, do it again, right? Like, just because there was one time it happened doesn't mean that we want to just stay and wait for it to happen. Not ever happen again. We want to see it again. You know, I feel like this, here's the thing. Um, the presence of the Lord invites us. God is inviting us to be in His presence. And what I mean by that is, is so like, for instance, when we come to the end of our service, I call for an altar call. Really, it's not about an altar call or anything formal when, I get, when, when we get down to it. It's about every person in this place having something deeply felt in your heart, hopefully, felt deeply in your heart toward God. And the way I would describe it for me would be, Lord, I'm, I don't know how to express myself freely until I'm feeling the depth of your presence wrapped around me. When I just feel the depth of your presence and then the way things come out, the way that I pray, the way that I feel, and the intensity of love for somebody else. Sometimes even the things that we, we mentioned here about prayer requests and things that we're praying for and the intensity of thinking about our sister's family and how deeply felt the loss of their son was to them. And in a sense, I'm saying, Lord, I know that you feel a depth to that that I don't know. But I, I know that if I acquaint myself close enough to you, I can feel as deep as any other person within that family from your perspective. And I want to get it. I want to get your perspective today, Lord. I don't want to just come to church. I want to feel like Jesus is transforming my life from the inside out and taking me to the next step of glory, whatever that is. So I want to invite you this morning. I want, you to, I want to invite you to consider that to step outside of just doing the forms, reading our Bibles, trying to figure out a time to pray in the morning, whatever it is, and anticipate that God's wanting to go deeper with you this morning, whatever that may mean, and oftentimes that means there's something in your heart that's in a sense, if you could just say it, it would be something like this. Lord, I want to feel more deeply than I do right now. I want such kind of depth that just takes the world and it dissolves it. Every problem, every struggle that I deal with is as if the moment that I'm just with you, it's gone. It doesn't seem to exist to me. And I want to know what it's like to be just the intensity of just being with you today, Lord. If you would just think about that right now and consider moving beyond just what the idea of a service is, with the possibility that that could mean that we would be entertained here for the next five hours. Because God's presence is as rich as the people who are hungry for it. I want the Lord. You know, sometimes I've found a fellowship because the reason why I love the fellowship element is when I'm with a brother or a sister and the conversation seems to be illuminating the heart of God to me, and strengthen me in my inner perception of the Lord, I want to be there forever. I don't want it to ever go away. I love that moment. that I And I'm sharing it with some other human being in that moment. It's strange to me because I've known what it's like to feel God for me personally, but to feel God with somebody else, to experience something of depth of what the Lord is 
revealing is just tremendous. But we could miss it when we think, well, when the preaching is over, when the people who come up off the altar are done, and the, the time that we continue to entertain one another through conversation is over with, it's over with. But why? Why is it really over with? It's because we decided to flip the light switch out. It's not because God doesn't want to shine and shine deeper. And I found it just seems to be the individual, usually an individual, that says, I'm just going to draw near today, Lord. I'm hungry for Jesus. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't even know how you're going to do it. I don't know who you're going to highlight. I don't know how I'm going to feel. But I know that it's worth it. I'm just waiting for you. And some of us know that all you do is just wait for the Lord. And when God gets in on whatever you're doing, you don't ever want to be anywhere else. So I want to invite you not to make this service last longer. I want to invite you to sincerely seek God with all of your heart. Pursue Him with everything within you today. Today. Don't wait another day. Don't think that there's the, the revival is waiting for another day. You do it right now. And you wait and let God do what He's going to do and then testify to us what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. What the Lord is revealing. The way we come to know this Bible is not by just natural induction. I just read it. I'm looking through it. I'm analyzing and I'm getting it. There's divine perception is what God gives us. And God gives us divine perceptions because we seek Him for it. Lord, help me understand this Word. And the way I would describe that is I remember I was, this Bible was not, a, not only a foreign book to me, but it was a foreign concept to me. And then as I would read it, I was finally introduced to going to church. I went to church because it was something to do. That's really why I went to church. And I started reading the Bible, and it was still like, this is weird. I don't know. I don't understand the stories. I don't understand the significance of it. And I remember a man kind of highlighting for me just kind of the importance of seeking God. And I sought the Lord, and I remember the revelation of God's Word to my heart. And see, this was something that I had never experienced up until that point. But as I was reading the Bible, there was a verse, and I couldn't tell you to this day what verse that was. But I remember it was a verse that not only jumped out at me, but I understood it as if somebody had given me the interpretation. And I was so wowed and so awed, and I knew at that moment in an instant I could have told you, I would have said, you would have probably doubted, but I said, God spoke to me. God spoke to me. And what I realized was it was somebody that decided, you know what, Lord, you're worth enough to seek. You're enough, worth enough to put off every other thing and just go after you. And, and, and you get to decide. Lord, you get to decide whether you give me a revelation today. You get to decide if you part the heavens and give me a divine understanding. But if you do, I will forever be changed. And I'll tell you something, when God speaks to your heart, it's just like the pastor said to me, you'll know that you know. You'll know that God said it. Well, Lord, what should I do? I don't know. Don't just go off the inner impressions of your mind. Wait for the Holy Spirit to solidify it in your heart. Now, now that I've preached to you my second message, I'll go to you and preach my third. I'm going to go ahead and preach the third message for today. And that is life-giving friends. Maturing relationships. I wanted to say that before this because I feel like as we press into the Lord as a, as a people, as we press into the Lord, these sermons are going to mean a whole lot more to us. God's going to speak a whole lot more to us as our minds are open to Him. Maturing relationships, not just 
in, they're not just encouraging and uplifting, nor just challenging and provoking. When we have good relationships or maturing relationships, we have these two elements that seem to be so important and essential to those relationships. That's encouragement and that's challenge. And sometimes we misplace what the other person needs the most in the moment. Sometimes when we're emotionally distraught, you think that encouragement is the way to go, but it's not always. As the Lord begins to peel back the layers, I found, and I said this to somebody earlier this week, and I said, you know, it's interesting, but oftentimes as I trace it back, the breakthrough moments in my life, it wasn't encouragement that got me there. It was conviction or something that hit my spirit that provoked me to see things differently. And so I realized that we need this. And God is our best friend. God is going to best do these things in our lives. And He knows how to balance both the encouragement side and the challenging side. I got an amen there. Can you help the preacher this morning? He knows how to do it. But the reason why God knows how to do it, and the reason we get life-giving friends, people who provide life for us, help us walk in through the difficulties of life, and help us move beyond that, is because they found it from God. Now there's encouraging people out there, and there's challenging people, but not ones who know how to do it with Jesus and follow the Holy Spirit unless they are in and walking with Jesus. Life-giving people help us move forward by way of the Gospel. It's that simple. We can never take for granted the power of the Gospel. So much so that Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, says this. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the, the, the Greek or for the Gentile. Understand Paul. Understand the man who's saying this. Understand the man who's bringing this thought out. This is the man who was committed to a life of a Pharisee. But this was also a man who was committed fervently to a life of destroying anything that had to do with the name of Jesus. He was absolutely convinced that anything that had to do with Jesus was so far from the will of God and from the mind of God that Paul was ready to practice and go to the ends of the earth to persecute and wipe away from the face of the earth the name Jesus. Now, this verse makes a whole lot more sense. Because that same man is the one that's saying, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it was the Gospel, it was the revelation of Jesus Christ that totally altered every facet of His life. It changed every dynamic. It didn't just change what He did. It changed the way he thought. It changed his worldview. It changed his perception of what was right and wrong. It absolutely altered everything that he saw about Jesus and turned it upside down. So, in a, when somebody has that kind of alteration in their life, when their life is so changed, they can truly say, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. You know, I was this week I was listening to some lectures or some debates between atheists and Christian view. And I was I was drawn to think amazingly how not just the atheist point of view comes into play, but it's it's like the idea of it doesn't have a scientific evidence to it or scientific proof, so we can discard it. 
There's no reason we should include any. But if we were to do that, we would say that God, who works in the supernatural, could not exist. No such idea could even exist. But that's what makes mankind stagger constantly, is that God does exist, and because He exercises this supernatural power, it changes the whole fabric of everything we know. So as we know laws and, and we look at the way the universe is, we'd say, we don't know how to explain God. Praise the Lord that we don't know how to explain it. But what we can do is this. We can find the Apostle Paul's and we can find the ones that are in this congregation today whose lives have been so dramatically changed by the regeneration of the Spirit of God in your life. There's a supernatural element that has touched you and made you a new man and a new woman and you can say, I'm different. There's things that I love that I hate now. There's a way of life and there's a demented way of thinking that's gone. And I can't explain it by science, but I can say this. There was an element of God's power that changed me and made me a new person. And why is it important that you sit here among us? Why is it important that we gather together? Is because we need to see your life. We need to see the outworkings of the power of the gospel. We need to hear you testify and share. Not how you're wondering if Jesus is real. Not if you're wondering. And if you're struggling with that, just look around you. Just ask everybody in the building and you'll find testimony after testimony of God's mighty faithfulness converting what could not be converted except for we can say it must be miraculous. Encouragement feeds the right motive. As I encourage you with this thought, as I encourage you with not what you're experiencing, but what God can do. Yes, you might be depressed like I was earlier today. Yes, you might be struggling with things in your life and you don't know what to do with them. But that doesn't mean that there's not a promise for you right now. See, this is the thing as I feel like as we draw near to the Lord, one of the questions you ask God sincerely is, Lord, I feel like you have a promise. And you said, whatever I loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever I bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Lord, you say promises like that as if they're present right now guarantees. And I, I know I've spent my time on Lord, I'm struggling because right now I need that guarantee. Right now I need to feel the power of that guarantee. I need to know and realize that. And I'm struggling to see that. And so I ask, just like any other good human being would, Lord, is it real? Is it true? That right now, I have the riches of the kingdom of God? I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ Jesus. Is that true right now? Ask. Oh, wait a second. You said ask and you shall receive. You notice he didn't put a time on the ask in five minutes and you will receive. Ask in two years and you shall receive. Ask incessantly and you shall receive. Ask over and over again and you shall receive. But we get this thing is, well, I guess I need to do it differently and I need to do that differently. And when you get down to it, it's not the difference in what we do. It's in the difference of what we believe. When you come down to it, you look face to face at the promises of God. There's probably that human element as it is with me. And that is, I don't, I'm not seeing it right now, so it must not really exist. It can't possibly be. I'm not feeling the power of God's divine presence working through my body and healing it right now. 
So I don't know that I can really trust it because I'm not feeling it right now. And that's the struggle of the human mind is how can I believe it if I'm not seeing it and not feeling it right now? Because you can do it on the basis of the trustworthiness of the one who said it. You have to ask, you have to be convinced that Jesus Christ really isn't trustworthy. And it's not a matter of whether you have felt it. It's a matter of whether He will do it. Because the timeline makes no difference as long as we know that He's faithful. So that's the encouragement we need. We need an encouragement that despite what you're feeling and seeing, God is there. You don't know the tragedy of sitting in my office at times or in the, a public sphere and talking to somebody that I know is a Christian. And I'm watching their faith shattered, bound by depression, not like a one-day thing or a two-day. They've been in this for three weeks, a year or two years, and all their hopes are beginning to diminish. And all they have left is to say, not to believe, but to say, I guess Jesus has it all in His control. And I'm saddened because I watched them meander. There's no joy there. There's no peace there. There's no hope there. They're not going out and preaching to everybody on the sidewalks. Jesus is the answer. Why? Because they don't feel like He's the answer. They look at their present struggles and they're like, I've been going through this for years, brother. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. But the reason is because Jesus did something that required a voluntary act of your own. It's interesting because of this. I, I asked myself that question. Why faith, Lord? Why don't you just come in, divinely grab somebody's life and alter them exactly where you want them? Why? No more than we would expect that love would have any value whatsoever if we were forced to do so. If you forced love upon me, I would either become a robot or you would wipe away the whole idea of love to begin with. There's no such thing of love without it being voluntary. Nothing of my own nature that says I invest myself in it. I want to give myself to this. And so when God gives us faith, it's not because He can't do it. It's because faith is your part to say I voluntarily give myself to God to do it for me. Does that make sense? Faith is me coming to the place of, Lord, you said it. I guess I could do one of two things. I could volunteer myself against it, or I can volunteer myself in favor of it. Jesus, here I am. I'm all yours. That's faith. And all he did was say, I just need you to decide you want it. That's really the, the, the true piece of it. Now, think about this. God doesn't just leave you to wait for you to decide, and I'll tell you why. The reason why He doesn't is because we wouldn't decide, because we'd be so intellectualized, so reprogrammed to believe that nothing good can happen out of this life, that we would have a way of thinking. So God does this for us. He begins to interweave into our life in ways providentially in our circumstances and situations to introduce the idea that He must be behind that thing that's happening. Well, why didn't nine die when that happened? Why didn't that? Why wasn't that worse? Why didn't that end tragically? Introduce the idea that God was behind that, so that you would begin to move forward in that direction. I guess God was there. You know, I can say this truthfully. I can say that 
no matter how I look back on my life, every tragedy that I can look back on, I can also look just as faithfully if I intend to. And look at all the good things and the amazing things and all the other stuff that could have been and saw that. And I remember, this is one of the times when my wife and my kids were on the wreck on Snow Hollow Hill. I've told so many of you that. But the reason it's so precious is because it never will fade. When God does something, you never do forget it. And as they were coming down the last, they had already made it through the curves down Snow Hollow Hill, but they were now on the straightaway coming down and the car went out of control and went over the embankment. They flipped the car. The car turned and landed on its tires on the hill facing the opposite direction having flipped. I want you to put that in your mind. I want you to think about that. How can so many things happen? And then it stops on the only flat spot in the middle of that hill. When do you climb hills that look like this and there's a flat spot that's about as, as, as wide as the car itself? It looked like a little miniature road, but when you go down and you walk down it, it doesn't last for too long, and they just happen to stop right there, and there's no tree, no rock, nothing to stop that car from continually tumbling. And you look down the ravine, and it's, it's a long way down, and I'm asking myself the question, do I really think and suppose that God wasn't involved in this? But the question would come back to me, well, what about those who suffered tragedy and it didn't end so well? It didn't end so well. And I would tell them, I want you to look through every aspect of your life. And I want you to not forget one thing. I want you to look at every aspect, did everything end in tragedy? Are you dead right now? Look at the sufferings and look at that. And then look at this. If God had created a world where there was no such thing as suffering, you wouldn't have the grand revelation of God in it. See, suffering is a result in a sense many ways in natural circumstances. God intervenes not to just always stop suffering, but God intervenes in the middle of suffering. Because why? Because one of the human elements of love is a need for comfort. We need comfort. If we never suffered anything, we never would experience comfort. So, you know, the idea that being rich and having money all your lifetime is really the direction for life. Never do you ever run into anything you can't pay for. Your bills are always paid for. The doctor, he's always taking care of you. All of that stuff. Would you really be happier as a human being if you never faced any tragedy or struggle? Are they really the happiest of human beings because they have riches untold? No. Some of the most blessed people in my life have been those who have suffered greatly, but through their tragedies, they've found opportunities to praise God through them. I can't give you an answer why bad things happen and God doesn't seemingly intervene in those situations, but what I can tell you is this. You have, a, you have the opportunity to know comfort like nobody else on earth does. Because you get to find the God who's divine enough to create us to be human and frail and to have give us bodies that can die. That same God interwove us with these broken pieces so that the rest of our life can be satisfied in Him. I got to thinking about this as I had a conversation with an individual about kind of the unhappiness of life. And I came to this conclusion. Jesus is it. That's my conclusion. Jesus is it. I don't care what your status is. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're poor. Your happiness, your real happiness is Jesus. Find Him. Find Him. 
really find Him. And what I found is this. We equate that if I suffer too much, Jesus isn't there. If I don't get what I wanted in life, Jesus isn't there. I'm sorry, that's not the reality. Jesus is the end. That's why we keep missing it, because when we're not satisfied, we expected God to satisfy us in that way. I want God to satisfy me in this way. I've been there. Lord, why don't you do this for me? I'll be happier. And I believe every miracle is not God's way of saying you would have been, this is the best way that you could be happy. I believe every miracle has only one underlying purpose, and that is to show us that God is the end for life. God is the end. So, whether I got one or I didn't, God is always the end for life. And so I've come to this conclusion that the reason why God at times, for many of us, says no is because He knows that your better avenue is waiting for it. That this is what you need most in life. You don't see it now, but you'll see it later. It's challenging friends motivate us toward maturity. So you have encouragement that feeds the right motive. You have challenge that feeds the maturity. Both are equally important. Encouragement, we need it to take somewhere. Uh, somewhere. So if you're going to encourage me, take me somewhere with it. Don't leave me sitting here and just encourage me along. I know this. I've been so depressed. How many have been there? Been so depressed that no matter how much encouragement you got, it didn't do any bit of good? Come on, I know. Come on, folks. I know that you've been there. Right? It didn't do you any bit of good. You're like, I'm just, I'm in my funk and leave me there, right? But it needs to take us somewhere. If you're going to do it, but the reason why encouragement doesn't take us somewhere is because oftentimes it's not encouragement, but it's something else that looks like encouragement. You know what it is? It's flattery. It's flattery. And I looked it up and it says this, flattery is the excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. Now, I mean, it looks like you're building me up, but that's not what you're doing here, so quit it, you know? Don't go to the area of flattery, but do what God calls us to do. The danger of flattery is it is disguised to look like encouragement. Flattery is an artificial way of making you feel good about yourself but encouragement is a genuine way of imparting hope. Now, I have been over the last few year, uh, few months thinking about um, optimism. And I have, de- I have defined, now be car- uh, listen to me carefully, let me finish here. I define there's a lot more evil to optimism than we often think. Because optimism isn't the end goal. And optimism says this. Optimism says, this is a bad situation. But in order to make it good, I have to start re-theorizing and re-looking at it and call it good. Well, the problem with that is, can slavery be theorized into something that's beautiful? No. Can when somebody gets murdered and slaughtered and it's been a bloody evil... Can we theorize that and call it a good? No, we can't. So there's so many things in life that being optimistic doesn't actually help us in at all. If it does anything, it begins to make evil actually a good thing. So basically, every sin could be categorized in the way of optimism and make it look like it's a beautiful thing. 
Faith does something different than optimism. Faith is this. This is a bad thing. This shouldn't exist. And God introduces a new reality to that. So this is what it is. This is what God does. So I was sick. Now God has healed me. I have seen people use optimism to try and bring healing in their life. And optimism replaces Jesus because if you can make a bad thing good without Jesus Christ, then you don't need Jesus, ultimately. So the reason I'm saying that is because I want to tell you flattery comes from optimism. It comes from an optimistic mindset that's blinded by the wrong idea of optimism. Now, I'm not saying this optimism is all wrong. Because pessimism needs some kind of contrast to it, right? But the reality is this, it doesn't fix the world's problems. And that's why when we come to faith, we're actually putting our faith in a divine creator who can reintroduce new realities into our circumstances. So that's why I don't need flattery. I don't need somebody telling me all is well when it's not. And it makes people, when you're there, listen to me, when you're there and you're in your funk, when you can tell somebody's giving you flattering language, doesn't that disgust you more? It makes you more angry. I know what you're doing and I want you to quit. Because it's not sincere, it's not genuine, and it's not helping. Don't do that. But what we would do is this. We would open our arms and we'd say, you know what? You might say something I don't like, but you're a true friend. And I'm not, I'm not listening to you in the moment, but I know you're right. Later on, there'll be some fruitfulness to it. Challenge is a fertilizer for growth. Challenge is a fertilizer for growth. True growth. Emotional growth, mental growth, spiritual growth, it's a fertilizer. I, re I remember I was challenged one time to go in front of my Spanish class. And they wanted you to go write on the board. They wanted you to write on the board uh, whatever. So if they, they had it in English, they wanted you to translate it in Spanish. They had it in Spanish, they wanted you to write it in English. And I didn't want to get up in front of the class. Not because I didn't know what to do. It's because I didn't want to feel embarrassed by being in front of people. And so the challenge was, and then I looked at my grade, and she challenged me with my grade, and I was starting to get, I think, a D in that class, and it bothered me, because I was getting great grades in the rest of my class. I was like, why is this happening? I'm doing great with everything. And she said, because you're not getting up in front of the class to put things on the chalkboard. That motivated me. <laughs> I got up in front of the class every time I could, and I wrote down on the chalkboard what was needed. But the challenge helped me face the, real, the reality here. And so I needed that challenge. And I think challenges are really important because they help us grow. If you sit in your seat or you do go about life without challenge, you let things just stay the way that they are, nothing will help you grow. You need challenge to move you beyond. Some of the greatest challenges are the ones that you have never tried, you never experienced, never tried, and now you're going to try. And you're going to experience frustration. And God interwove frustration within it to have you keep on trying and move with His grace within it. So we have one of these stories, and that's one of them with David and his men in Ziklag. I just want to give you an idea of what happened here. David and his men in Ziklag, they had went in, and David had gone onto the wrong side. He went onto the Philistine side. All of the Jews had been fighting the Philistines for ages. And here he is in the situation in life, and now he's siding with them. And he's willing to fight with the Philistine people. Well, while he's over there, his homes, his, their wives and their children and their, their possessions were left in Ziklag. And David left them in Ziklag. And he went there and there was this 
struggle within the Philistine ranks because they had the the main man basically said, "We don't trust him. This is the way that he's going to get notoriety with his his uh, old leader." If he comes in and makes it look like he's siding with us and then turns against us, then this is going to be a terrible thing. So no, we don't trust him. Well, then David leaves because they basically said, no, you can't be a part of this. David got on the wrong side of who he was fighting for and fighting against. But when he got back, he found out that his whole community, that the homes had been burnt down. The children had been taken and the wives had been taken captive and their possessions were taken away. But their, every, everybody's home was burnt down. And it's said in the Bible that they wept until there was no more power to weep. But then you add to that, David's pressure, the pressure came, and it said the people spoke of stoning him. Here he is, distressed like everybody else, and everybody's looking at him like, this is your fault. Had you not done this, we would have been here, and this would not have happened. This is your fault. And they were ready to stone him. And you know what it says David did? It didn't say he wallowed in his self-pity. It didn't say that he wallowed in his depression. It said he went and encouraged himself in the Lord. He went back to God's faithfulness and established the miracles that God had done in his life. And he went back and he did that. That's why why we need challenge. is because challenge helps us overcome depression. It helps us overcome hard circumstances. It helps us overcome when we're being rejected and we don't know what to do with it. God did not leave David to wallow in his discouragement and self-pity. God commissioned him to go and win. That's a true friend. Don't stay here. You need to go win. Challenges always include a means and an end. And what I mean by that is this, that you have an end in goal. If the end in goal is to just make yourself be a better person, you might miss the whole thing. The end in goal is that God gets the glory. Then everything we do toward that end, which we call means, produces the right thing. That's why oftentimes when we talk about adultery, adultery has no end for the glory of God. It has no end in the well-being of mankind. But it does, and oftentimes, satisfy this indulgence in the human race to have self-gratification. And the self-gratification to the wrong end. The right end is for the glory of God. And so when we come to that conclusion, we realize we have to stop certain things Because they don't end in the right way. So if we're challenging somebody toward the wrong end, that doesn't do any good. Life-giving friends know that there is not a set rate of growth. And I'm saying this is because one of your greatest challenges will be this. I shared the gospel with somebody. I shared my testimony with somebody, but there's no fruit there. I want to ask you a question. When you get a chance to sit with somebody or be with somebody in life, and they're not becoming Christian. They're not becoming Christ-like. And man, you see all kinds of pointers in their life, and they're failing, and they're falling. You come to church, and you find somebody who rubs you raw, and you're like, you're supposed to be a Christian. On what account? If we start thinking that everybody who comes into a church is Christianized by coming into a church, we miss the whole grounds. There's going to be people that are outright sinners. Well, they confess to be Christian. It's no different if I walked into McDonald's and confessed to be Ronald McDonald myself that I could become Ronald McDonald. It's not going to happen that way. You have to be born again like anybody else. So why do we let them come into our ranks? 
Why do we let them, in a sense? Why do we give anybody a chance? Why do you give me a chance? Because we trust that when Jesus does get into their life, they're going to be made different. And until then, we're going to be long-suffering, love, and continue to elevate the gospel until God purges their life and changes them through His way and not our way. And that means there's going to be some need for tolerance. Some tolerance. Not the kind of tolerance that dismisses the wrong. Like I said, oh, brother, sister, we know that you have a good heart. You know, you just want to do the right thing. And, you know, we just don't understand why you keep failing. That's not what we need to be telling them. Everything's, so, hey, let me listen to you. Tell me what's going on. Oh, my gosh. I listen to you and I can hear uh, unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. God is the problem. God is the problem. I can, man, I can hear God is the problem. So what am I going to do? I'm going to encourage you to look the other direction. I'm going to give you reason to look the other direction. I'm going to tell you my testimony to get you to look the other direction. And then I'm going to pray like I've never prayed before when you're not looking. And I'm going to pray over you and pray God give you revelation that you don't have. Because for some reason, you've got a pride that's resisting the Lord for right now. But I love you and I'm not giving up on you. <laughs> we got a beautiful little voice in the background. So that's the kind of challenge. That's what life-giving friends do. It's essential that we know that we are seeing gospel-generated changes. The fruit of somebody who came to have what they have in life because of Jesus. I am what I am because of the grace of God. Now, I can't say that if I go off cussing in my uh, field in the world that I live in, if I go on cussing and all that kind of stuff, I can't say that I feel like that's the fruit of a gospel lifestyle. But I can say this, is that that doesn't stop the gospel from having its place within my life. If I go punch somebody in the face because I'm mad at them, or I yell at my family because I'm discouraged by something going on in my home, that doesn't mean that's gospel-generated fruit. But it does mean this, that I have only one direction to turn now, isn't it? I only have Jesus to look to. So then we need the same thing. Everybody needs the same thing, and that is the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. For everyone who believes. You know what I found out for me is one of the hardest things to get to actually to be able to believe? It's the feeling of being guilty. I have such a hard time of being able to trust when I feel guilty. I want to be punished. I don't want to be forgiven, in a sense. I deserve punishment. That's kind of the highlight of our conscience. That's why the gospel is so powerful. Because instead of God punishing you, God saves you. God regenerates you. God does something new in your heart. He doesn't just forgive you. He makes you a new man and a new woman in spirit. That is powerful. Because there's no other religion on the earth that can, can give us that. You've got to buy your own works. You've got to become endeavor to be a better person. And you might, but you'll never be good enough, essentially. Some people think of it like this. Well... I'm more of a good person than I am a bad person. That's why I have a chance with God. Really? You're a better person so that if you lie, as long as you don't lie more than you tell the truth, then you're a good person at heart. Is that really? Is that how we're doing this? Because <laughs> are my good deeds outweigh my bads? And there's no, if there's any religion out in the world that tells you that's how you got to undo that is become a good person. They left you stripped naked the moment this happens. 
the moment you sin once, you're still guilty. That's the problem. I can, I can erase most of my lying, but if, if any measure of lying, basically, if I can measure it out by saying enough good deeds outweighs a bad deed, then that means if I lie once or twice, I'm still within the good, right? And you've got to measure it out like that, but that's not how it works. So then we need a salvation that says it doesn't insist that you get the opportunity to lie, but that if you lie, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what's the change in it? The change in it is this, that because Jesus accepts me freely and that I don't have to earn my right into it, it gives me reason and envelops within me an intrinsic sense that I want to do what's right. So psychology is in the way of the gospel. How many of you know that? How many of you know psychology is in the way of gospel? Why? Because there's a part of humanity that can't be touched by natural means. It can't. Psychology does not come with the supernatural element that the gospel does. The supernatural element that the gospel does. When someone puts their faith in Christ, God begins doing His work of regeneration. That's supernatural. An inward renewing of the heart by supernatural power while still involving and honoring our free will. That's Sovereignty. The God didn't set aside and grab your free will outside of out of you, pull it and throw it away, and then all of a sudden you know, miraculously and supernaturally make you a new woman or a new man at heart. But what God did is leave that ability and that capacity to choose within you, and then He invested Himself supernaturally within your life in a way that made you want Him. Isn't that powerful? God. I want you in my life. That's when people say, I don't believe in Christianity because I believe they use fear tactics to get you to believe in God. And so if you're going to die and go into eternity without Christ and all that that looks like into an eternal fire, that's why, that's what makes Christianity Christianity. And that's what makes the devil the devil and sin sin. What makes Christianity Christianity is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that while you were living a devilish lifestyle, while you were linked up to the only thing, every immoral act and mindset that there was, God intervened on your behalf so that you could find a way into Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Man, I'm an enemy of God and an enemy to everything that has to do with morality and Jesus loved me despite my messed up way of thinking. And yes, that's Christianity. That's love. And He didn't do that in, in order to force me into, and compel me into Christianity. He did it to invite me to Himself. And I became a Christian because of that. There's a supernatural revelation through the Gospel that transcends our reason and that enables us to understand and comprehend the mind of God. That's why when somebody doesn't know Christ, you see them and you realize there's something missing no matter how much they think, no matter what they do in cultivating knowledge, they still miss this part because there's a power that God gives that helps us transcend beyond our own reason. God invites His mind into our own and somehow we're getting the divine understanding of things and God doesn't set aside the humanity of it. He just keeps it within and He keeps it in check while He does it. And again, though there's supernatural power of God, our moral code, this is really important to think about, is being rewired so that our way of life is the fruit of the gospel-generated change. 
God is doing something supernaturally to rewire your moral code. It doesn't mean that you see it more right or more wrong, but it now I'm invested into what I know to be right, and I'm being drawn into that. He's rewiring that because of the power of the Gospel, because of what the Holy Spirit is doing within me, and that's how I have Gospel-generated life. Now, the reason I'm saying this is really important, because some people are saying, well, that's hard, because... I don't see somebody bearing the fruit right now and I could see how I could get them psychology. I could use some form of psychology to get them to be a better person right now. I could get them to be a better person. And psychology is destroying the fabric of the gospel. And when we do that, what we do is enrich them with this idea that I'm steeped in morality, but I'm still at heart a devilish being. I'm still at heart worn out in my intentions for sin and sinful practices. So it's not about just getting the outward to change. This is the thing I would say this. I would rather nothing change on the outside and you hear the authenticity of the Gospel and now weigh it out. If you'll believe the Gospel, I will wait for God to do the genuine work that that changes you with. But if I do this any other way and I try not to tell you the Gospel and I try not to tell you what Jesus does in the life and give your life to Him and surrender to Jesus. But I tell you, here's, here's some good things you can do. And here's some ways that you can change your life. And here's ways that you can be happy in life. If I do it that way and then introduce the gospel, I put the cart before the horse. And salvation really exists in human endeavor to make the changes on the outside. Well, I'm going to clue you in on something because I'm realizing this. No matter how good you get on the outside, you're still going to be imperfect. I don't know if you realize that or not. No matter how perfect we get on the outside, we're still going to be imperfect. So then what are you you going to offer to God on that day when you're like, well, I thought it was about being a really good person. I love the fact that the gospel makes us really good people, but it doesn't make us perfectly really good people in the sense of we still have things missing. And the reason for that is because that's why we stand on it's only by the blood. It's only by the blood of Jesus. His perfect holy life sacrificed for my life that gets me into the gates of heaven, then any good thing is because I want to honor what He's done for me. That's gospel-generated fruit. This is something that is not generated on human power. It is from the beginning to end, an inner working of Jesus to eliminate and draw our hearts. That is what we mean by the gospel. So what do we make the difference? Is We can say any man can live a moral life. But what we can't say is this. Any man can live a justified moral life by the deeds of their own life. In other words, you can't prove that you are clean and pure from all sin on your own estate. You have sinned. And the moment you sinned once, you already became guilty. So there's no morality that's going to erase that and take that away. You need justification through the blood of Jesus. That's what we're going to tell our world. I hope that's what we're going to tell our world. When we see somebody struggling in alcoholism or drug addiction, that's what we're going to tell our world. And how wonderful is that? Because they're probably spending a lifetime wondering why the family has rejected them or why people hate them and why they can't seem to get their business together. And I'll tell you why. Because what they, they're looking at from this perspective of, I'm already destroyed, I'm already morally ruined, and then I have to become a good person on top of that. I don't think so. 
It doesn't happen that way. But what does happen is this. I become accepted by Jesus Christ. Then enters a whole new reality for me. I don't ha- it's not because I've become good. It's because He is glorious that I can come into the kingdom of God and it changes everything. It changes everything. Friends that stick by your side who encourage and challenge you in this direction are life-giving. This means they keep pointing you away from artificial, self-made changes. There are Christians, droves of Christians, that are bound by the artificial. They are trying to become better Christians. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do all of that. But the one thing that's missing is they're not any more intimate with Jesus. They don't love Him. And I'm going to tell you, I had one of the starkest reality. I asked a gentleman not too long ago, I said, could you describe for me? I was expecting something completely different. Could you describe for me? Just give me some of the descriptors of how you love Jesus. What's that look like for you? And I was expecting him to say, I don't know, it just comes like a heartthrob for me. And he said, well, I ask him for forgiveness. And I ask him for a strength. And I ask him for help. And I ask him, I'm like, that's all the things you're asking him to do. That never pinpointed an ounce of love in your heart for him particularly. And then I watch over and over again, especially men, re-repeat the same drastic things over and over again and struggling why God isn't in on it. And I'm like, it's because you're trying to make God a a means to your end. You just want happiness. That's all you want. You don't want God in your life. You want happiness. You want to be free of misery. That's why you're praying. I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry, sister, but that's not how it works. When you get to the place that it's not about you as the ultimate end, then you stop sacrificing it on artificial means. And so what I see them doing is they're trying to improve themselves to get in a better position with God. I'm going to do better. I'm going to listen to more of my Bible. And I'm like, there's no fruitfulness out of it. The kind of fruitfulness that I would expect here. So the reason I'm saying that is because not only do we not want to honor, we want to introduce that into somebody's life, but we've got to be very careful when we see somebody talking like that. I'm not going to always just go in a corrective measure, but I'm going to listen. I'm going to say, listen to me. At some point, I'm going to say, you're getting, you're getting it messed up. You're trying, to, you're trying to get God to accept you, and it's not happening on that basis. You need freedom. And I remember as I was sharing my testimony not too long ago, and I was sharing when I was a youth, I was sharing this with somebody, and I caught this this time. When I was, it was months after I had come to Jesus. And I came to Jesus. My approach to Jesus was not, uh, Lord, am I religious enough? Did I stop cussing? (laughs) Did I stop um, thinking dirty thoughts that I shouldn't have been thinking? Did I stop? Did I I do all that? Now I know that that I can pray. I didn't do any of that. I just went in and prayed as if I was already accepted. And I don't even know why I did it that way. I just did. And maybe there was something somebody said that gave me the idea that God will just hear you right from where you're at, right in this moment. But as I did, I remembered later on, I reflected on, I'm, I, it was a moment in my backyard, and I don't know, but months later, I had not, and believe me, every word that came out of my, my mouth was a swear word. I had gotten that from my dad. He was a Navy man, and he told me never to talk like that. Don't, do as I say, not as I do. That didn't work. Not a bit. So here I was in my father, mimicking my father in a very good way, maybe better than he did. And I remember that day, as I was walking through my backyard, I haven't said a swear word, but this is what caught me. 
When was the last time I did? When was the last time I said a swear word? But this is why that was so powerful. Because it made me reflect on something else that I hadn't thought about. I'm not suicidal anymore. I don't hate, and I'm not full of rage and anger like I was. And that was my revelation. And then it taught me something, that God introduced me into His presence free of charge so that I could find my way to that lifestyle. That's gospel-generated fruit. That's what true friends are going to do for you. They're going to help you realize, I got free because Jesus came into my life. And there's something about the power of God's mighty presence that it's like I didn't have to learn something. It became known, (laughs) if I could say it that way. Instantaneously became known. I knew I was loved, and I knew I was richly loved beyond any way of defining it in an instant, in a moment, because I had shared real experience, life to life, spirit to spirit with God. That was it. It, Essentially, it's like this. It's like saying God is so unselfish that though you don't deserve it, He says, I know that you're rotten to the core, but that doesn't change the fact that I want to be in your life. Now, can you accept that, and will you let me in anyway? I actually had a guy one time tell me, he said, because we were inviting him to dinner, and we were inviting him into our life, and he said, eventually, I I told him, I said, I don't understand. I'm trying to be a friend to you. You know, I know that you could use a friend. What's going on? And he was open with me and completely honest. He said, "I, I struggle because every time I'm around you, I feel guilty. I feel guilty. And I knew what he was saying. He was saying, your goodness, when I look at myself in the lens of your goodness, it makes me feel rotten to the core. And I know I don't deserve to come to your house. And I don't deserve to be in your presence. And all I'm thinking is, that's not the way Jesus does this. And that's not my heart towards you. I know that. I know things. Even things you don't tell me, and that's not going to change. I want you to come. Man. And if the world and the forces of, uh, how would you say it, the atheist mindset could understand that's the heart of our faith, wouldn't they give it up? I would think so. Didn't they understand that that's not, we're not saying anything else but that we accept humanity in its roughest form, trusting that God is going to make it its most beautiful image and what he purposed it to be from the beginning. Well, I've shared with you the gospel. (laughs) I'm going to skip on a few things. Here's a few habits that we can develop that can keep us from these relationships. I want to share them with you quickly, but then I want to pray. Focusing on accomplishments, not on people. Focusing on accomplishment. I got this done and I got that done. Some of us are building our houses. We're just not building relationships. Just not making time for prioritizing people in your life. That's really sometimes what it gets down to, is I'm just not making time to prioritize people. Letting the desire to rest get in the way of the desire to get together. How many of us are there? Like, And believe me, I'm not saying don't rest, please. Go take some time to rest. But get some time to get together with people. You know, it's interesting. We will make time for social media, some of us, YouTube or TV or whatever, For those of you who still uh, invest in the life of TV, 
We, we do that every single day after work, as if that's the way that we can relax. What, why does that get us there instead of getting together with somebody? Just a thought. Think about it. The convenience of browsing social media rather than planning for a social gathering, similar to the one I just said. Letting life just happen. Let me just say that's a big one here. We just let life happen. I, I mean, I got to do what I got to do. I get busy. I didn't mean to leave you off. But I want you to hear something. It never just happens to go in the direction you need it to. Life doesn't work that way. You got to work to make it go the other direction. You can't just sit there and expect it to come at the time when you're doing everything else. You got to reprioritize things. And always promising yourself that it will happen eventually. Why doesn't it happen eventually? Because something else fills the gap. Make it important today. Make it happen now. And here's what I'm going to say. God has given you grace to move forward. He's not given you grace to stay put. Unless if. This is the moment where he's saying, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Just wait. But the reason I say that is because what I just shared with you, the depth of that gospel... Our sister was saying, let's uh, pray, pray for boldness. The depth of that gospel, meaning Jesus will take us right as we are. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that worth telling everybody in the world? Well, what stops us? Excuses. <laughs> not Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. God's not telling us, we, oh, well, it's not my plan for you to do that. We're just not doing it because we've made reasons or excuses for it. But we don't have to. We don't have to. I want to share something with you. In my heart, I feel like there's, there's people that are not here today. There's a lot of people not here. And I'm, as I started to put some of the stories together, it's because they're hurting, folks. They're hurt. And it's the kind of hurt that they feel like they feel ashamed to come be with us. Now, I can't tell you who they are. I can't tell you all those other things, but I can tell you something else. They need you right now. They need you. They need you to, they need you to tell them that that doesn't matter right now. I want you to be a part of my life. You understand what I'm saying? And I think some people are sitting in the darkness and the devil is throwing a few lies at them and telling them, you can't be there. You're not good enough. You need to be better than you are. You need to have a smile on your face because that's what people are used to. Any of us really feel like that here? Like they have to have a smile? We would rather you not come. Here's, here's what we'd say. We'd rather you not come if you're, not, and you're, in, if you're in a funk because you're going to be a downer to me. Are we like that here? <laughs> you're going to just be a downer. I'd just rather you just stay home and be in your funk. Yep, I know that that's not really, that really doesn't help you because that just makes things worse, right? So let's invite our brothers and sisters back into our company. And I only know one way, and that is we need to make a few phone calls. It's that practical. Make a few phone calls and pray over them. But they're not here sometimes because they don't they won't welcome themselves. They need us to welcome them. And you know what? Here's the other thing. And I want to say this in a very practical way, but I remember I had somebody in my life we were really close to. We were close together. We loved each other a lot. We wept together, we prayed together, we went through some hard things together. And I remember we started just uh, slowly beginning to separate from one another. And I was like, this is weird to me because I don't think either one of us want this, but it's happening. And then this happened. I started calling and saying, hey, what, what time can we get together? We make an arrangement to get together and it would fail. And a lot of times on their end. 
And they begin to look like, and I begin to get this thought go through my mind. I don't think they really want to be in my, they want to be close to me or a friend to me. And I almost let that destroy my opportunity to get closer to them. Because I started believing things because it felt a certain way. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get out of that way of life. Don't start believing about something, even if they tell you, you know what, I hate you. Assess this. You hate me because the devil has blinded you and made you believe things that are not true. All the more to love you. <laughs> get what I'm saying? And when we get to that place where we stop, we stop feeling like, oh, if I'm not accepted, then I'm not going to accept others. Oh, we've got to get out of that field. Our churches aren't growing because the Holy Spirit isn't advancing. Our churches oftentimes aren't growing because the people of God aren't being what God called us to be. Well, you've got the gospel, right? Jesus accepted you freely. You have some funk, but Jesus got you into it, right? So go tell somebody else the same thing. They need it as bad as you do. And if you're not feeling all that great as a Christian, then understand where they're coming from. Okay, so let's do it. Let's invite our brothers and sisters back into our life, not by telling them you need to get to church as a first. You hear me well. I don't believe that church is the answer for people's lives. I believe it's fellowship is the answer for people's life. That may mean my, your church becomes my home. We're going to talk with you. We're going to hear you. And I'm not talking about just talking about Bible and religious things. I'm talking about what's going on in your life. Man, I didn't know that. And, and I, I read a quote and it hit me. I'm going to stop preaching here in a minute, but i got to say this. I read a quote and it said this. People listen not to understand, but to respond. That's what's killing us. We are not listening to understand. What you're saying is like you're talking against God and all of that. And it's like you're just saying bad things about the Lord. And it's like, wait, 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 just listen to them. Listen fully. Understand. You understand this, that they are missing things by being blind, but they don't just need counsel in the moment. They need to know somebody cares. Us men, we're learning it well because we're learning to practice that with our wives. But we're learning it in a world, I don't give a care if you're a man or a woman. You want to be heard. You want to be known. This is bothering me, and I can at least vent it long enough for somebody to have heard it. Because I'm tired. That's what they're saying. I'm tired. Church, I'm tired. Of not having, I'm tired of hearing the first advancement you give me as a gospel advancement when you don't even listen to me. As if I don't exist. You're just trying to Christianize me before you even find out there's an emotional person, there's a spiritual person behind the walls of your doctrine. Just hear me for once. Then tell me the gospel, right? I need to know you care. And there's a part of that in the human race, people are being overlooked. Your tragedies mean something. The struggles you go through, it's unbelievable. Before they even get out of their mouth and some of the struggles that they've gone through. And it's like, and I remember as I listened to one brother tell me his testimony, it was so awesome. And he told me about his rebellion, right? It was a brother when I was in camp. And he told me about his rebellion and what he had done to his parents and all of this stuff. And how God, would, God had gotten him along the path of people who had loved him, prayed for him, were there for him. And I remember somewhere in the central element of what he was saying, tears just pouring down my eyes because I got it. I was like, that was your life. That's where you came from. And look what God has done. And I was just embracing the testimony for what it was. 
So no, I'm not in any way saying we need to diminish the importance of the gospel, but we're so speedily ready to throw a seed before the ground is fertile for it. The gospel's precious, folks. And we don't just throw it around hoping that it'll grow on good on soil. We place it properly and give it within the right kind of ground to grow in. Amen? Okay. And if there's anybody who wants to, me to preach uh, another two hours, I want you to stay back after the service. We'll reconvene in 30 minutes. <laughs> Father, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that there are some things, God, that we do overlook. And Jesus, I thank you for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit so that we can love one another truly. Dear Jesus, to really love the people around us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son and that while we were yet enemies, Christ went all the way to the cross for us. And here we are, just about ready to receive the communion. And Lord, I don't want that element that was so real to us in the early stages, in the moment you first were introduced to you, to be lost because of time. Lord, can you help everyone in this place look forward to the furtherance of your presence in this moment. And I pray, God, as we prepare, as we prepare to take the cup that symbolizes the bloodshed of the sinless body of Jesus, the cup that represents the sacrifice of the deepest love ever could be known to man, and that cup of love poured out in the, at the cross of Jesus through the blood of Jesus for my life, Lord, and through the lives of people who haven't discovered it yet. Can you help us take that fresh with a new love in our hearts for it, Lord? Jesus, as we prepare, Lord, not only the blood but the body, the bread that reminds us of the body, the sinless, perfect body of Jesus. And remember, that body was broken for us. Lord, help us today to cherish it. Some of us need to weep, Lord. Some of us need to let out the tears. Some of us, Lord, need to embrace it and give some time and reminisce over your faithfulness. Some of us, Lord, just need a new beginning. And I pray, Lord, you will help us get there today. In Jesus' name, I'm going to ask uh, I'm actually going to ask the worship team not to come up because I want you to have an intimate moment with Jesus too, right? I want that to happen for you. And sometimes when we're up here, we're missing what God has for us. So would you give me the space to do that as well? But I want you to play in the background the music on the computer. We're going to have worship in the background, but this is an opportunity for two things to happen. One of those things that needs to happen is you need to share your love for Jesus to Him personally. That needs to happen here. Anything that's in the way of that, there may be some sin, something that's been in your heart that you're like, I'm not ready to take communion yet because I haven't yielded my heart to Jesus. I need to yield to the Lord. This is going to give you time to do so. Every one of us get to take of this and come and receive the elements at a different time frame because of it. And so I'm not passing it around because I want you to take time. 
We can never rush what God's going to do in this moment. And it's a very special moment for some of us. Maybe there's one of us in this place that's really feeling God's really urging something. And I want you to have your moment. We want you to have your moment with the Lord. Please hear me on that. So we're going to give this, we're going to uh, turn the music on. And I'm going to open up the, the elements here for you to come receive them. But I also want you to say, you don't have to come. You can come to the altar or you can stay where you're at. And you can pray and spend some time with the Lord if you feel like you want to do that or feel led to do so prior to. But as you feel like your heart is touched and ready to embrace, embrace freshly the blood and the body of Jesus for you, when you're ready to receive that brand new, no matter how many times you've done it, then I want you to come up. Do you hear me? Then I want you to come up and take it. When you feel like this is just a brand new thing for me, make it new for Jesus. Just one last time. I want to pray over this, and then I want the music in the background. Father, thank you. Thank you that your love for our souls is beyond our comparative understanding. Jesus, would you fill this room with just the sweetest love, the sweetest love for you that we could ever have. And God, as people are ready to make this a new and a fresh thing, God, I can't require it of anybody, but I know that it's precious when we do. Lord, make it fresh in our hearts. The blood was shed for me brand new today. The body was broken for me brand new today. Lord, would you make it new to us so that we can love it we can love what you've done and take a fresh new look at it as a sacred thing for all of our lives. And we'll love you for it in Jesus, Jesus' holy name. Jesus' name. Go ahead and turn the music on in the background.